Well, good morning and welcome to Mission View Church. We're glad to have you with us here this morning. My name's Evan Miller. I'm one of the deacons here at Mission View. And just in case you don't know me, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. Born in, I was born and raised in North Canton, lived here most of my life. I love this area. I went to Hoover High School here. I graduated from the place that we're sitting right now. Uh, my wife, Jamie, and I lived in North Canton for a couple of years before we moved to Green recently with our brand new daughter, Adeline. She's a month old. She's here today. She's really cute if you get a chance to see her. Um, interesting fact about us. My wife and I both work for a manufacturing company. We work at the same location. We work out of the same building. It's a lot of fun. She's the director of human resources, and I'm the director of operations. And um, some people ask me, what do you do in a position like that? Well, if you, if you ever sat in math class and you um, had those word problems where the teacher would be like, okay, so if there's a man in a factory and he has to produce um, 250,000 widgets in two weeks, but he can only produce 2,500 in a day, how many machines will it take to produce 250,000 widgets in two weeks? I always hated those math problems. I always wondered, who, who does that for a living? But that's me. I have to figure out how to do that. So as, if, from, for as long as I can remember, I always had an entrepreneurial spirit. I always wanted to be involved in business. I was the oldest of three children, oldest of three boys. And uh, if you look at this picture of us right here, you can see my, my brothers are obviously jealous of my good looks and my good eyesight. So while they were playing sports and video games, I had an entrepreneur spirit. I wanted to be in business. I wanted to make money. And I can remember always looking up to my grandfather. He was kind of an entrepreneur himself. And uh, he came to me one day with a business proposition. He was obviously looking for somebody that was reliable, trustworthy, and dependable. So he came to me at the age of 12, and he said, I want to partner with you. And this was his partnership. We were going to plant pumpkins in July, harvest them in September, and sell them. Oh, what a great plan. It was a great partnership because he grew up Amish, he was a farmer, and he had a tractor, and I didn't have any of those. That's why I thought it was so great. So we went in one, one hot July day, being 12 years old, he got me up early. We went and we found land and we plowed this land with the biggest tractor that he had. And then after it was plowed, we stood back and we looked at it and he reached down into his pocket and he pulled out these three little Ziploc baggies full of seeds. They were seeds for pumpkins, for gourds, for squash. And we started sowing these seeds. And all summer long, we watched as this pumpkin patch grew. And it was exciting because you got to see the, the little pumpkins grow and get big. And soon the weeds came. And the weeds kind of tried to choke out our pumpkins and our pumpkin patch. But they were no match for our pumpkin patch. And it was awesome. We got to the end of September and there were more pumpkins and more gourds and more squash than we could count. More of them than we really knew what to do with. And I thought as I looked over this site, I'm going to be rich. I am going to sell these. People need pumpkins this time of year. You have to have pumpkins. It's autumn. So I had to find a place to sell these. I lived a few minutes from here. There wasn't really a good place to try to sell pumpkins where I lived. So we had a lot of competition, you know, so we had to get away from that. So my, my uh, grandparents, my grandpa and grandma had um, a rental property in Alliance. My grandma loved this rental property. She spent a lot of time there. 
Um, she stayed there a lot of times, almost like camping for her. She just loved the city, loved staying there a little bit. And uh, I thought, you know what? She's got the perfect location. She's right by a gas station. She's right across the street from a supermarket. We're, we're going we're gonna to go to town with this. And we're going to set these pumpkins out. So we got the best pumpkins out of our pumpkin patch. We polished them up. We loaded them in my grandpa's pickup truck, and we drove to Alliance. And we started setting them out by the road, by the street, so we could attract our buyers. So I went home that night, and it was a, it was a, it was a Sunday night, I believe. And I went, um, went home, went to bed. I remember waking up in the morning, and then um, went to school, got off the bus. And I remember getting home off the bus that Monday and getting a call from Grandma. I was thinking, oh, it must have went really well. You know, she's calling. She, she needs more, more brought to her. So she, I pick up the phone, and it's Grandma, and she says, Evan, I have to tell you something. Somebody came last night in the middle of the night and smashed your pumpkins. I thought, oh, really? Just probably a few. You know, that's the cost of doing business. We'll just write them off. We'll move on. No big deal. Who cares? We got big margins in this. No, Evan, somebody smashed all of your pumpkins. All of your pumpkins are smashed all over the street. You got like a couple gourds. No, those are gone too. Everything is gone. And so at this point, I'm 12 years old. I look back now, it's funny. But when, when I'm 12 years old and this happens, I'm devastated. I'm upset. I'm angry. We got to call the police. We got to do something about this. I spent all summer long sweating and just trying to take care of these pumpkins. And now they're gone and I have nothing. And so it was, it was disappointing. And so I never got to really enjoy the full fruits of my labor. And I, and I tell you that story today, not so you can learn about my pumpkin farming skills or lack of skills, but because the Christian faith is a journey, and sometimes we go through life as Christians, and we hit difficulties, we hit troubles, and they cause us to pause and to reflect and to wonder. And sometimes if we're honest, when we're alone, sometimes, sometimes we ask, is it all worth it? Will it be worth it in the end? And we begin to question, and sometimes we doubt and we need to be encouraged. So that's what this book of 1 Peter is about. This is the theme of 1 Peter. Peter is encouraging the early church, the first century believers, and he's encouraging us as well. So we're 1 Peter, verse 13, where chapter 1 today is where we're starting. And we come to a therefore as soon as we start this passage. And whenever you see a therefore in Scripture, Therefore, it's telling us this is what we need to do in light of something that we learned before. So we need to go back to the section that was covered previously. So in order to do that, we're just going to recap last week what Pastor Steve talked about. And in the section last week, Pastor Steve preached on, um, he was, Peter was giving hope to the first century Christians. Peter was writing to the followers of Jesus in the early church. See, these Christians, they were persecuted. These Christians, they were tortured. They were jailed. They were imprisoned. Their crime following Jesus. That was their crime. See, the emperor Nero back then saw it as being a capital crime, and he would seek you out. He would find you. There was a price on your head if you were a Christian. Persecution started with Nero, and it didn't end there. We see it today happening to our brothers and sisters all over the world, and we need not forget that. So the Bible calls these first century believers, the Bible calls these Christians, the Bible calls us exiles or outsiders. Because people back then hated Christians, and they hate us nowadays today. And they would just kill them in the most barbaric ways. The emperor back then was known to kill followers of Jesus by nailing them to crosses. 
He was known to kill them by feeding them to hungry dogs. He was extremely cruel. He was known to host these garden parties at his palace. And because they didn't have lighting outside back then, he would use the Christians as human tiki torches. When it was time, when the sun was going down and when when night was coming, he didn't want to end the party, so he would find a Christian, tie them to a pole, pour oil on their head, and light them on fire to illuminate the night for his pleasure. Barbaric. So the purpose of Peter's letter is to give hope to exiles. And last week, Peter was encouraging these Christians to look to the future to have hope. Look to the future. Look to the future inheritance. Look to your future salvation in full. Look at the joy that it's going to bring you in the future. That's what Peter's message was to the the Christians last week, and that's what Steve was preaching on. And what greater message to give to somebody. They can be free from pain, struggle, and sin, and that's great news to the early church because that's on the horizon. Peter's telling them to shift their focus to then, to look then, to look in the future. But now we get to our scripture this week, verse 13. And these are three commands for our relationship with God while we wait on our inheritance. We are not to be on autopilot until Jesus returns. We have a mission, we have a task, and there is a call on our lives. So three commands. The first one we see here in verse 13. So follow along with me. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in the midst of trial, in the midst of hardship, it's easy to place our confidence on things other than our faith. I know personally, when I'm going through a hard time, it's not always my first thing to stop and just, and just place my hope in Jesus or place my faith in God. I want to I focus on what I can control to take myself out of the pain. That's what I want to do. But Peter, Peter reminds us and he commands us. He's telling us the opposite. He says, put your confidence fully in the grace of Jesus. He wants believers to be fully focused on the grace that Jesus provides. No competing influences. And he's reminding us, what, 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 what more source of encouragement could you have than to know that no matter what happens in this life, no matter what happens to you or your family or your loved ones, you have been forgiven through the grace of Jesus. So he's saying, focus on that today. There's nothing better than that. That's why Peter pleads with us to focus fully on the grace of Jesus instead of the things society wants you to find your status in. It's easy to find comfort in your job or your family or to find comfort in money or the things that money buys. But when your soul is in a time of trouble, these things cannot complete you. Money cannot give you full hope in your times of suffering. When you're at your darkest, things will not comfort you. So Peter is saying again and again, do not put your hope in things, put your hope in Jesus. So how do you do this? Peter, what's your secret? This is easy to say, but hard to do. How can we do this? And so he has it right in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, number one. And number two, being sober-minded. Some other translations say, and I think it's a better translation than, than what we see here in, in, in our modern. Some other, other translations say this, gird the loins of your mind. Gird the loins of your mind. We hear that and we're like, what are you talking about? 
That doesn't make any sense. Gird the loins of your mind. No one's ever said that. You would slap somebody if, you, if they said that to you. <laughs> what does that even mean? So I have an illustrated guide right here, how you gird your loins and what it means to gird your loins. So, I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I, I look at this, this guy here and looks like he's wearing a dress. It's a, um, they call it tunics back then. And I don't know why, apparently pants weren't invented yet. Guys, if you're looking for something to be thankful for today, be glad you don't wear a tunic or a dress or robe or whatever this is. Be glad you don't have to walk through life and go to job interviews and, and all sorts of things wearing this kind of dress-looking thing. So you're basically, you're taking, the way you gird your loins, you're taking the excess robe, you know, because it's in the way, because it's flowing, because you can't move fast, because you can't act quickly, and men are, back then, just like today, were called to protect and to care and to guard uh, cities and, and all sorts of things. You, you needed to take it up and to tuck it in your belt so then you could move and run and play football and all, all sorts of stuff. Because you can't do much with a long, flowing robe. There's not much you can do. That's why we're glad Levi's were invented. And even cargo shorts. So when we hit rock bottom, it stinks. When we hit rock bottom, it's hard. But remember, your hope is found in Jesus. Gird the loins of your mind. Don't let your mind wander. Because this... This free-thinking, free-flowing minds that we have, if they're free-thinking and free-floating, it leads to loose living. Gird the loins of your mind. Don't get distracted. Don't let your circumstances define you because Jesus died so you could live. If he's your rock, he will pull you through whatever you face. Stay focused. Don't get distracted. Gird the loins of your mind. Number two, Peter says we need to be holy in all of our conduct. Peter says we need to be holy in all of our conduct. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also shall be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. You know what? Sometimes when we, re when we read scripture, we tend to skip over things and verses and passages that are familiar to us. And we skip over the little words sometimes. It's not, I don't think it's intentional. We just, we just do it. They seem to run together sometimes. So I want to draw your attention. Peter starts with the word as. Tiny, tiny word. Two letters. A-S. As. Peter starts by saying, as obedient children. Notice what he's not saying. He's not saying, act like obedient children. He's not saying, be like obedient children. See, God sees those that follow Jesus right now as being obedient children. Did you get that? He sees you today, if you're a Christ follower, if you follow after Jesus now, he sees you as being his obedient children. He has declared you as being his obedient children. And when I read things like this, I just think, yeah, are you sure? Are you kidding me? I'm not obedient. If you knew my heart, if you knew my thoughts, my doubts, my fears, you'd say that I was disobedient. But see, that's the point. If we were able to please God with our works, if we were able to earn our faith, we could, we could boast about it. But we, we, we're not good enough to do that. So Jesus has done the work on our behalf, and that's great news. Jesus has done the work. He's paid the price. He's lived the perfect life. 
And Peter's pleading with us here to, to, because we've come to Jesus, to be holy, to not live like we used to. Don't let the unrestrained impulses and desires control you. Because before we came to Jesus, before we knew Jesus, we just lived any way that we wanted, without any disregard for God. Without any regard for God. And societies like ours, societies like the ones that Peter and his hearer and his hearers are living in, see, they welcome sin in open arms. Just like our society. Our society welcomes sin, they encourage it, they practice it publicly, and they seek approval from everyone. But as Christians, God calls us to be holy, and that automatically makes us strangers in our society. So here, the standard of holiness is God, the call to holiness is on every believer. The ground for holiness is written in God's word. Several times in the Old Testament, the prophets command God's people to be holy so that they could be set apart for God's purposes. God wants us to live in such a way that we are set apart in a culture and consistent with God's word. That's what holiness is. Holiness is not perfection. We'll never achieve that. Holiness means to be, to be set apart, to live for God's purposes. So we are called to be holy and to live holy and to stand firm so that we stand out. So that's number two, living holy lives, having holy conduct. The third thing that God wants us to do while we wait for that inheritance found in verse 17. Verse 17 says this, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. That's number three. That's the third thing we need to do. And you read that and you're like, man, that's a strange command. I mean, come on, Peter. Why are you saying this? Why are you Debbie Downer? Why can't you, why can't you just mix it up a little bit? Why can't you put a positive spin on this? Why can't you say, you know what? Conduct yourselves with joy during this time of your exile. Jesus is coming soon. Be happy. Be joyous. Why can't you say that? Well, you know, okay, so the, so the word fear that's used here is not used to say that Christians need to be scared or terrified when the world persecutes you, but to live your life in such a way that it's on display for the world to see that God is real. And it also lets the world see that God is a father and God is a judge and he's telling them, yes, God is your father, and yes, you are set to receive the ultimate inheritance. The Bible calls us co-heirs with Jesus Christ, the best inheritance that you can absolutely ever imagine. God has set that inheritance aside in heaven. He has marked it out. It will not be destroyed. Somebody's not going to get there before you and take it. God has set that apart. He is guarding it. But he's saying, don't take that for granted. Don't take your life here for granted. Don't just walk around like there is no God. Or don't, don't walk around like he's distant. He is here and he is with us. You haven't been given a license to sin or a license to live any way that you want. So Peter calls us to live in fear, but it needs to be the right kind of fear. See, if you live with a fear that's scared of God, you'll become legalistic. You'll become ritualistic. You'll begin to think that Christianity is all about the rules. You know what, if I obey the rules that God commands for us to obey and I can achieve that, God loves me. But if I don't obey those, then God hates me. It's not about the rules. It's not about ritualistic living. It's not that kind of fear. That's the wrong kind of fear. 
The right kind of fear is when we see him being our heavenly father and we see him being the supreme and sovereign judge of the world that will judge the deeds of believers and non-believers alike in the final days. That's the right kind of fear. That's the right kind of fear. It's the right balance. So in case that isn't enough motivation, Peter gives you four motivating reasons right in the middle of our message that are centered on Jesus and why we should live with this right kind of fear. All four reasons, it's kind of cool, begin with the letter P. They'll be up, they'll be up here on the screen here. All four reasons are, are here. It's, this is a highly artistic, illustrative section of Scripture. You know, so there's sometimes people that will tell you, oh, you know, I don't know if the Bible is relevant. I mean, it's, it's kind of old-fashioned. You know, you guys, I mean, that's nice if you have the Bible as your guide. That's great, but it's, I mean, it's, that's not for today. But it just, 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 wait a minute, okay? Look, look, look at this. Come down to verse 18. Peter talking about living in fear. He, he starts with this. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited by your forefathers. Knowing that you were ransomed. So Jesus ransomed us. Jesus purchased us. And it was done by way of ransom. That word, ransom. It's a violent word. It's an aggressive word. It's an active word. I mean, when I think about movies that portray ransoms, I'm not reaching for a Disney movie. I'm not reaching for a Pixar movie. Man, you know what I'm going for? I'm going for Liam Neeson in the Taken trilogies. I'm going for Jason, Jason Bourne in the Bourne Ultimatum, the, the, that trilogy. I mean, these movies are fifth gear, full throttle, all gas, no brakes. Buckle up. I'm sitting on the edge of my seat. I got a big popcorn in my left arm. Got a big drink in my right arm. I'm at the movie theater, and I've, I've already eaten all my popcorn first five minutes in because it's so exciting, but I can't get up to get a refill because I, I'm on the edge of my seat, and I probably have, I'm probably developing an ulcer from the amount of, 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 of excitement that's going on, watching this ransom take place, watching the bad guy go after the person that he loves, and watching, and watching the, 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 I'm sorry, watching the good guy go after the bad guy, and you see this person that's caught in the middle, and then you just hope the good guy gets to the bad guy before the end, before it's too late, and the good guy always does, the good guy always wins. And that's exciting because that's talking about us and God. God paid the price of a ransom. He, God ransomed us. He pulled us out of sin. He pulled us out of being slaves to sin, from being held in bondage. That's what Jesus did. He ransomed me. That's exciting. That's not boring. That's not boring at all. So he ransomed us. He paid the price so you could be free. That should sober us. That should cause us to live holy lives. That Jesus ransomed you. The second P word that's here, we saw the purchase is ransom. The price is Jesus' blood. We see that in verse 19. So how did Jesus ransom us? Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. God paid the highest price possible to ransom you. No currency was sufficient. No amount of money would compare to the blood of Jesus. Jesus' blood is more valuable than silver or gold because silver or gold and dollar bills are corruptible. They fade. The, the, the world's currencies up and down, up and down, up and down. Jesus' blood is current, current it is consistent. It is priceless. It is unmatchless. God bankrupted heaven so that you could be saved, so that you could come close to God. 
That's why he calls us to live holy lives. So the next thing we see here, the plan. So when did, when did God plan all this? Verse 20 says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So this plan, God planned all this to take place for, for his plan to send Jesus. It was planned before the foundation of the world. This shows God's kindness. He is proactive in his love. This was his plan A. There was no plan B. This is his choosing before the world was created, before humans existed, before you breathed your first breath. God chose to do this. This was a firm plan. This wasn't a maybe I'll do this. This was firm. The, this, is, this is what God chose to do, to send Jesus to make a way for people to become close to God. So the final reason that we have here in this section, the final motivating factor for us to live in fear is God's purpose. God's purpose. So this is found here in verse 21. Who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. And here's the purpose, so that your faith and hope are in God. The purpose of all of this, the purpose of Jesus coming, the purpose of God's plan is to steer you so your faith and hope are in God. So when you see this, when you hear this, and when you read this, it should sober you because it removes the faith and confidence that you would place in yourself and allows you to put full confidence and identity in Jesus. He gets the glory for your life. He is the focus of your affection. So there's several reasons why you are to live in fear during the time of your exile but don't skip over the word exile. We are just as much exiles today as Peter's audience. We are strangers in this world. The world is not our home, and I don't need to take a lot of time this morning to convince you of that. He's saying, remember, remember when you walk, talk, and breathe while you're still on this earth, you are to be strangers. Some Christians have this confused. Some Christians believe that you're supposed to live like tourists. Tourists? Yes, yes, some people argue, yes, this place is not my home. I'm just visiting earth. I'm a tourist. But no, we're not tourists. Tourists are disengaged with the culture. Tourists are, are, are here to come, to visit, to vacation, to take pictures, to go on tours, to go to museums and little gift shops and dress awkwardly. And here's the thing. Tourists don't have an impact on the culture. Tourists have zero impact on the suburbs, on the cities, on the neighborhoods. They are not influential. We are not tourists. Some Christians think, well, we're supposed to be immigrants. Yes, immigrants. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's where I'm from, and I'm here now on earth. I'm an immigrant. Well, yes, so you know what? Immigrants move into a culture that's not their own, but the immigrants, they follow, they embrace the culture that's not their own, they absorb the culture that's not their own so they can become a citizen. Speaking of a sociological type of view, that's okay. Speaking of a spiritual type of view, the Bible says our faith is, is, is worthless if we absorb the culture and we act like everybody else. We're to be different. So we're not immigrants. 
We are not immigrants. Instead, Peter calls us exiles. An exile can be defined as someone who is away from their home and longs for home, but doesn't adopt the culture. We are exiles. We are aliens. We are refugees, but not just any kind of refugee. We are are refugees with an inheritance greater than the riches of a billion billionaires. We are strange Yes, we are strange. We preach that every man, woman, and child is born into a sin problem, and the only solution for that problem is that everyone must believe in the words of a penniless Jewish man named Jesus that came from Nazareth who died and rose again and was sent here by an invisible God that we call Father, and we are guided by an invisible spirit who lives inside of us. And and, and you know what? This isn't a hobby. This isn't a hobby for us. This isn't something that we do. It's not just a part of our life. This, this, is, this is all we know, and this is all we have. We are strange, but we're not crazy. We are in a foreign land, but we're not lost. We do not wander aimlessly. We live purposeful lives to please God and to serve others. We have been given a mission to love, and we have been given a hope that's unending, This is who we are to be. Is this who you are? Are you living as an exile? Do you look strange to your coworkers and your friends and your classmates? Or is Jesus just an accessory in your life? Is he a good luck charm on your keychain? Or do you cling to him and call him savior? So three things we've looked at today. Three things we need to be actively doing while we wait for Jesus' return. Number one, set your hope fully on the grace, the end time grace from Jesus. Number two, be holy in all your conduct. Number three, conduct yourselves with fear during your time of the exile. Those things are all God-focused. They're all things that are focused towards God. And the passage transitions to a fourth item. And the fourth item is something that we do towards each other. This fourth item is, is talking about love, Peter is talking about because our souls have been purified by an obedience to truth for a sincere and brotherly love, love one another earnestly with a pure heart. So we actively pursue love. This is a commandment towards one another, towards us, towards everyone that's a Christian. We're to love one another, to love everyone. And this presents a test to each of us to examine our heart. If you want proof that your life has changed, been changed by Jesus, We should be able to examine our heart and see that we have a love for fellow Christians and other believers and non-Christians too. And we show grace to others because Jesus has given us grace. So the command to love one another is sprinkled all throughout scripture. That's one this morning where you're like, okay, you know, that's that's not mind-blowing. But that command convicts us. It resonates with us because God's word is active. That's how Peter is ending this passage here. He's talking about God and the promises of God. He's talking about the abiding word of God. He's talking about the scriptures. He's saying that they aren't dead, that they're timeless, and that they're alive. And because they're alive, they're active, and they move in our lives, and the scriptures breathe hope into us. And because these scriptures are timeless, they're relevant. So that's why Peter ends this section the way he does with a promise that God's promises never fail. We're going to close on this and just let these words just hang this morning. Let this be something to hang your hat on for the week. All flesh 
is like grass. In its glory, like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. The, the passage that we're looking at there, just imagining, I want you to visualize this with me, that all men are like grass. All men are like grass, and grass fades, flowers fade. I want you to look at this rope with me here. This is an illustration I got from Francis Chan. I wasn't really that creative enough to come up with this, but you have this rope. This rope is a timeline for your life, it's a timeline for everybody. It goes on for eternity. And the Bible says eternity is spent one, or, one of two ways, either in heaven with Jesus where you commune with God or in hell where you're separated from God. And so here we have this rope. It goes on forever. And you see this little section here, this little section of red. This little section of red represents our life. <laughs> Man, it's tiny. It's not very big. This is like six inches right here. But our lives don't seem that way. We think that sometimes we think we're invisible. And we think, you know what? If I can just pour more time, more money, more things into my life, if I just could set myself up right, if I, if I, if I just had this, if I could just plan my retirement right, and we, we, we put all this effort into just this little itty-bitty, tiny section of the rope. We spend all this time investing into us instead of eternity. And it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't, it's not that big. Eternity goes on forever. That's the first thing we can see from that. The other thing that we see from this too is when we are persecuted and when are the enemies of God seem big. I mean, you, you just, it's heartbreaking. You look at the persecution in the news today. I read this week, Christians being raped and killed and beheaded. For what? Because they believe in Jesus? And you see that and you think, man, the enemies of God, like that is real and that seems big and I feel helpless. But the reality of what that's saying there is that they cannot exist past here, that eternity goes on forever, and the enemies of God have no rule in eternity. It's just, it's just this. So our lives are short, and we need to be focused on that. So when things, enemies seem big, or opposition seems big, or persecution seems real, this is all that it can really reign in. Our lives in Jesus go on forever and ever, and we have this inheritance that God is going to give us, and don't lose sight of that. So if you're sitting here this morning, and maybe you're new, maybe you've been here a couple times, or I don't know, maybe you've been here a lot, but if, if you're still, if you're wondering about this Christianity thing, if, you're, if you have questions, and if, and, if, and if you hear this this morning, if you hear what the Bible says about all men are like grass, tomorrow we are, we are, we are the grass clippings. That's, that's what life is like. It is that short. And so you look at this little section and you wonder, how do I know Jesus? How do I, how do I make it so I'm not wasting this and wasting my eternity? Well, you know Jesus by this. You, you look at who Jesus is. Jesus came from heaven to earth. He was born as a child born as a baby, grew as a child, grew into a man, and all throughout life, as Steve was saying earlier, he never sinned, never sinned, completely obeyed God perfectly. And the reason why that's awesome is because when he went and died on that cross, he took the sins, God took the sins of everyone that would believe in him and put 
them on Jesus and treated Jesus as if he was the one that committed those sins, even though he knew no sin. That's transaction number one. Your slate is wiped clean when you trust in Jesus. But it doesn't end there because there's a second transaction, and this transaction is awesome because God then took, and this second transaction took the righteousness of Jesus and transferred it to our account so that when God looks at us, not when we die, but looks at us now and when we die, he sees us as having the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Even though we don't deserve it, he doesn't see us as the imperfect person that we are. And that's good news. And, and it, doesn't, it doesn't cost money to do. All you need to do is cast, cast your, your anxieties on Christ and call out to him and ask for God to save you. The scriptures say, the scriptures say that if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. So take him at his word today. Cry out to God, ask him to save you, and ask him to take your six-inch life and to propel you into an internal, unending relationship with Jesus. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity to open your word, to examine what you've done for us while we wait. We need to be reminded of this, that we are not to be wandering around, but to stay focused on you and the grace that you've given us. Father, help us to live in fear of this as exiles, not as proud exiles, but as loving exiles. Help us to show love to everybody. Help us to show kindness and compassion, just like you said on the cross when there were people that were, that were uh, doing evil about or, 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 or not on the same page as us. You said you love them for you and because they know not what they do. Help us to have that same kind of mindset and attitude, Lord. We appreciate all that you've done for us and all that you do for us and all the things that we don't even see that you do for us on a daily basis. Please draw us near to you. And in Jesus' name, amen.